It's important that we keep this dialogue going and this energy alive. Because for centuries, there have been fights for justice and equality in this country, led by black people. This movement is no different, but as white people, this is the breaking point. This time, we've gotta have their backs. Trust us, we know that sports are important. It's why we're gathered here tonight. But do black lives matter to you when they're not throwing touchdowns, grabbing rebounds, serving aces? If that was uncomfortable to hear, good. I used to shy away from moments like this because it's convenient to be quiet, to be thought of as safe and polite. Colin Kaepernick never shied away. He knew that discomfort was essential to liberation and that fighting the oppression against black people is bigger than sports. So will it be uncomfortable? Yes. In speaking up, will we make mistakes? Yes. That cannot stop us from trying. And not just for a few days or a few IG posts. This is our moment to prove that we know a better world is one where black lives are valued. No one deserves white privilege. It's not something we earned. Believing black people, and not just in instances of police brutality, and then finding your lane to get educated and amplify is the first step. It's great that sports are back, but George Floyd won't be there to see them. Breonna Taylor won't be there to see them. Ahmaud Arbery, Tony McDade, Nina Pop, Rayshard Brooks, Dominique Remy Feld, Leilene Polanco, Toyin Salou won't be there to see them. We can't let sports try and take us back to the way things were. Every athlete at every level has the power to show what it looks like to fight for what is right. This week on Crossing the Lane Lines. And this idea that, you know, white women essentially have bought into capitalism. And as a result, they only support their own individual ambitions and they don't actively seek sort of collective action with other um, uh, members of other minoritized communities. So they are notorious for not um, supporting their LGBTQ um, colleagues, they're, they're notorious for not for not supporting their Black and Brown and Indigenous colleagues. Like they are known for supporting themselves and essentially making money for themselves or winning gold medals in the sport world for themselves and other people who look like them. Since last summer's uprising, after the lynching of George Floyd, many white people said that they would stand with Black and Brown folk to demand systemic change that imbrues this racist society. White female athletes like Sue Bird, Megan Rapino, and Paige Beckers have come to the defense of their fellow black and brown teammates, oftentimes facing harsh criticism from management and the press for being vocal allies. But where are white female swimmers in all of this? Why haven't they spoken out in support of the BIPOC community in swimming? Why didn't they stand publicly with Simone Manuel after she was grilled for 24 minutes at her Olympic trials press conference? Allyship has consequences. And on today's show, we'll be joined by Dr. Johanna Mellis, a historian, former D1 swimmer, and elite level swim coach, addressing the need for white female athletes to challenge the way things are in swimming and how they need to be. All that and more coming up. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Lee, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. Mention the name Sue Bird to anyone that is familiar with the WNBA and thoughts of a three-time WNBA champion 
and four-time Olympic gold medalist come up. Likewise, if the name Megan Rapino is mentioned, images of a mainstay on the women's national soccer team, World Cup champion, and Olympic gold medalist would spring to mind. However, what isn't often mentioned with respect to these two amazing athletes is their willingness to raise their voices on issues of social justice. For example, Bird was instrumental in the groundbreaking WNBA collective bargaining agreement that was approved in 2020. And Rapino has fought for equal pay for the United States women's national team and in 2016 was the first white athlete to join Colin Kaepernick's protest by taking a knee during the national anthem. Both women have defended black female athletes in sports against the onslaught of white supremacy that is so pervasive in this country. Neither shies away from what they feel is their responsibility to point out racism and inequality in sport, as opposed to placing the burden of change that is needed on black, indigenous, and people of color. As encouraging as it is that more white female athletes in the WNBA and the women's national soccer team are calling out racism in society in general and sports specifically, the voices of white female swimmers speaking out on behalf of marginalized blacks and people of color in either society or sport is noticeably absent. When Simone Manuel failed to make the women's 100-meter freestyle finals at the Olympic trials this past summer, she was subjected to a 24-minute interview by reporters in which they seemed to question her confirmed diagnosis of overtraining syndrome. Often during the interview, Manuel was seen breaking down in tears, trying to compose herself to answer the barrage of questions concerning her performance in the pool and her health status. Although many white female athletes felt, quote, sorry for her, none spoke out or admonished the reporters when they faced the cameras and had an opportunity to do so. So why didn't they speak up? Why is this sort of thing still happening in 2021? If white female swimmers care about girl power, and a need for more young women to get involved, especially black ones, why can't they take care of those already in it? Joining us to talk more about this issue is Crossing the Lane Line's good friend, Dr. Johanna Mellis. Dr. Mellis is an assistant professor of world history at Ursinus College, based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She is a former D1 swimmer, elite-level swim coach, and co-host a podcast entitled The End of Sport. Dr. Johanna Mellis, welcome back to Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you so much for having me, Najee. It is an honor to, to be your friend and to contribute to the podcast in any way that I can. And I just, I learned so much from you and your other guests. And so I'm just really thrilled to be here again. It's an honor to have you back on the show. Dr. Mellis, several white female tennis players came out in support of Naomi Osaka for withdrawing from the French Open due to mental health issues. Gold medalist Simone Biles received the full public backing of her teammates when she withdrew from several events in Tokyo. Yet when Simone Manuel needed support the most during that brutal 24-minute press conference I mentioned at the trials, none of her white female teammates stepped up to defend her in public at their own media day. Dr. Mellis, why do you suppose white female swimmers didn't challenge the press? the commentators and others when they had ample time to protect Simone? Yeah, this is such a, an important question and it's a huge one. So I'm going to try to kind of address it from a couple different angles. Um, 
And one, I mean, I've thought a lot about this, and I think, honestly, I think when it comes to white female swimmers and, and, and you know, not just female in, in the swimming world, but, but white female athletes in other sports, they are so hesitant to say anything that might be perceived as critical or negative of the, of the establishment, whether that be of the sports media, of their own organization, of the International Olympic Committee or the NCAA or whatever it is. And really the only time when they're willing to even say the tiniest thing, it's usually because they themselves have experienced something. And, you know, this isn't that much of a surprise because for any listeners who know anything about sort of the history of white women, and I include myself as like a white woman in this, I don't say, you know, these are people and I'm so different from them. I'm also a white woman who is still learning about how to do all these things. Um, but again, we, we, our history is that we only do things that we, you know, it, when we experience things directly um, and that serve our own individual ends or that our family's experience or our closest friends. Um, and, you know, I could see an argument from a white female swimmer saying that, you know, they didn't want to speak on behalf of Manuel, that they didn't really know what was going on or whatever. But I, I essentially sort of call bullshit on that because you're right, and that during their own interviews, they could have said something. And, you know, I did not do a scholarly study to analyze, you know, every single press conference to analyze what every single white female athlete was doing on the social media. That would take, like, research and, and, um, and money and, and time and all these things that I don't have. Um, but this would be actually a really great study um, because um, the, the, the silence around what happened and the complicity of white female swimmers and, and allowing and, and sort of essentially supporting what the sports media did to uh, Sam Emanuel was really obvious. It was really deafening. And it was really, there were a lot of crickets. And, and really, I think what we're sort of seeing a little bit in the swimming world is that we see a lot of white swimmers kind of being quote unquote feminists or, or calling themselves feminists or using this or kind of um, behaving as quote unquote girl bosses. And what they really are is they're white feminists. And, and I mean, even feminists is a loose term because they're not, they don't even support each other when it comes to, and they don't even publicly call out these organizations when it comes to sexual harassment that like white women are experiencing, right? So they're not even being allies to white female victims of sexual abuse and assault, except for maybe behind closed doors, which is one thing, but like you need to say your voice is as loud as possible to draw attention to the issue and affect change. Like we know that that's how change happens. Um, but white, white women have really bought in this capitalist idea of the girl boss, this idea that, like, if you succeed, if you do everything right and you make money and you, you know, win medals and you kind of do what you're told, that you will be, like, a boss of your own destiny and that you will demonstrate how, how sort of how uh, tough you are, how smart you are, how ambitious you are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's this really great article by this um, amazing sports journalist named uh, Natalie Weiner. And, and Najee, I can send you the article to maybe link in the show notes to listeners who might be interested in, in it. And it's essentially this article about the National uh, Women's Hockey League or the National Hockey League. Um, and it talks about kind of the white feminist girl boss ethic and this idea that, you know, white women essentially have bought into capitalism. And as a result, they only support their own individual ambitions and they don't actively seek sort of collective action with other um, uh, members of other minoritized communities. So they are notorious for not um, supporting their LGBTQ um, colleagues. They're, they're notorious for not 
for not supporting their black and brown and indigenous colleagues. Like they are known for supporting themselves and essentially making money for themselves or winning gold medals in the sport world for themselves and other people who look like them. Um, because they believe that's the way to succeed in like a white male world, when in reality, they're just sort of proving the white patriarchy and they're just sort of proving that whiteness needs to be um, upheld and they are essentially using themselves as tools to uphold whiteness, whether this be in like a capitalist environment and or sort of a sport environment like you see with swimming. Um, and um, Natalie has this really great, great quote where she where she says, quote, um, that this white kind of girl boss idea is a continuation of the capitalist kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing. And she says, quote, it is a band-aid for the systemic inequality that even cis straight white women still undoubtedly face that hinges on their ability to replicate that inequality only with that on the top. Right, so they're only supporting their own needs, and so therefore they are um, reinforcing or reiterating and strengthening inequality and in whiteness in this case, um, because they're only out there to seek out their own ends or ends that are similar to their own. Um, and as a result, they're not willing to, again, kind of seek broader collective struggles and kind of support other people who might be less fortunate than they are, um, unless it's through like social or charity work and um, other people can speak to this more definitively than I can, but social and charity work when it comes to white people is, is filled with white saviorism, with kind of people using their money to go into communities of color or colonized um, countries or whatever and kind of saying, you know, you are doing everything wrong, you are backwards, um, you know, you are quote unquote uncivilized to use a racist term, and we're going to teach you how to do all these things, you need to convert to our religion, et cetera, et cetera. So it sort of is in the, the same vein as that. Um, but I just I just think all of these things. And the other issue is that, you know, swimmers are fearful for, um, you know, are they going to get the same funding if they start speaking out? And they are fear, fearful of losing kind of sponsorships. But we've seen, actually, that companies are willing to support um, social and, and racial justice activism, right? Like Megan Rapinoe is not hurting for sponsorships. Right. And, you know, we know this and they've proven this over and over again. So really white swimmers need to kind of step out of their comfort zone and they need to be willing to stand up for people who um, so that so that people like um, some Emmanuel are not fighting their battles on all on their own. Right. I mean, you, you pointed out um, Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles is having the support of white colleagues. And we know that that's what really matters. Um, so this is sort of a, a long-winded way of saying, you know, there are many reasons why they're not doing it, and they're really just serving their own ends, which is also undermining their own ends, right? This is reinforcing inequality that white women such as myself also experience and we also face, right? We're not liberating everybody. We're only serving our own ends and reinforcing inequalities. I often hear many white folks using the term ally. They claim to be allies for black and brown people, but there's more to it than just claiming to be an ally. Allyship has consequences. Now, when we talk about the word ally, what does that mean to you in the sports world, and in particular with regards to swimming? So I think I'm not alone in thinking this, but ally and allyship um, is sort of a fraught word and that, I mean, it's, it's, it's been co-opted by people who want to kind of put like hashtag BLM or, you know, Black Lives Matter or kind of whatever, you know, they'll kind of pro-equality, they'll kind of put these things in like their bios or they will sort of use um, evidence of their quote-unquote allyship to um, support their own needs and to kind of show to others, like, look at how wonderful I am. Um, so I, I think it's been co-opted a lot. 
Um, but I, I think to really kind of be an ally slash advocate, because I think it, it should be both. And, and I don't just say advocate, because I think sometimes, again, advocates can kind of take over. Like Me Too, I think of Me Too, the Me Too movement is kind of originating with um, black women, and then it was co-opted. And white women have really taken it over to kind of be the public facing, you know, the kind of most predominant sort of public facing um, image when we think of the Me Too movement. And they're advocates for it, but they're not seeking to like liberate also black women who have been victimized uh, by sexual abuse and sexual assault. So, so even advocate can be sort of a fraught word, but I think a kind of a combination of the two where, um, like you said, the you know your actions that they, they will have consequences right because if you are resisting the white the, this this um cisgender um hetero white patriarchy if you are resisting that of course there's going to be backlash and you have to expect it and you have to be okay with that and sort of figure out how you're going to deal with it because speaking out on it on any form right there we have like 400 years plus of our history of this cishet white patriarchy of, of, of uh, you know, colonizing people, enslaving people, um, dispossessing indigenous people, committing a genocide against indigenous people, right? This is part of our history. And um, so any challenge to that is going to, uh, people are gonna choose to respond to challenges to the system uh, with backlash and with disagreement, uh, with, with sometimes violence. And you have to be okay with that because in order to move the needle at all for, any, for yourself and for anybody else, you have to be willing to expect that people are not going to be happy with what you're doing. Um, so you have to be okay with that. And you have to stop. And, and one thing that I feel like came out of the summer of 2020 was a lot of people saying, we need to listen. We need to listen to black and, black and brown voices. We need to like shut up and listen. And I think there was a moment for that. And I think we need to move beyond that. And I think we need to listen. We need to learn. And then we need to act. And we need to act in concert with black and brown people. We need to find out what are their aims and work to support them. We should not take over their movements. We shouldn't do what happened with Me Too. You know, we need to work with them and work like in step with them, um, figure out when you need to kind of step back and follow, you know, other, other people's lead because they know better than you. Um, and I just think, um, you know, we're just not seeing that in the soaring world. We really, really aren't. I mean, really the, the most kind of recent Evidence that I saw of a white female swimmer kind of being willing to be any kind of advocate or ally was um, Maya Dorado. And over the summer when news broke that white male Olympic swimmer, U.S. Olympic swimmer Michael Andrews, that he was not going to be vaccinated, she very publicly came out on Twitter, and it was one of the only times I've seen a white female swimmer do this. She came out and, and critiqued him, and she said, like, if you really care about the team, you care about everybody. You care about everybody's health being vaccinated. And several very, very prominent fellow former U.S. Olympic swimmers came down on her and were basically like, you know, this is a time when we need to hunker down and support each other and not criticize people on the Olympic team. And that was so gut-wrenching to see, to see, a, a, again, a white female swimmer, Olympic swimmer, who, is, who holds such clout in our world to actually – um, criticize a white male swimmer, and and you know the, you know the whole thing is like you know there's the whole question of why are white people not getting vaccinated? Like we don't have the same kind of histories that we do as you know black and brown communities when it comes to medical racism and all those things. Um, and and all these male swimmers came down on him, and she got critiqued so hard. And and I didn't see any white female swimmers who publicly and very outspokenly, and I'm not just saying like share her posts, I'm not just talking about retweeting, but I didn't see people like quote tweeting her or sharing 
her, her points and kind of expanding on them and adding weight to them. That I did not see. Um, so I just think we need to see a lot more white women be, be willing to kind of, quote, unquote, be sort of uncomfortable and kind of push the bounds and be okay with making other people unhappy because you know that you are doing it to help other people beyond just yourself. It doesn't seem like the swimming world understands what the concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion really means. By that, I mean most DEI statements are written by white folk. If black and brown people try to write it, oftentimes it's perceived as too radical. DEI statements are supposedly invitations to join the sport of swimming. But swimming is not a very welcoming environment in the first place, in particular for women. For example, recently, FINA refused to allow a swim cap made by a company called Soul Cap to be used in Tokyo. They felt that since there was never a need for them in the past, i.e. that white folk never needed them, why bother? Further, they mentioned that it didn't follow the natural curvature of the head. Now here's an opportunity for white female swimmers to speak up on behalf of their black and brown female counterparts who could utilize something that gives them no competitive advantage and that didn't force them to sacrifice their hairstyles in order to compete. Moreover, by banning this cap, FINA in essence said it cared nothing about being more inclusive. Now, one could make the argument that this ban could affect white women whose hair sometimes is more thicker and thus a challenge for certain white female swimmers to use the standard latex caps as well. Dr. Mellis, I'm wondering if you can give us your thoughts. Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked this because it's such an excellent question and has many different layers to it. Um, and I know you've just addressed this in past episodes, and I just want to kind of reaffirm what you and other guests have already said, that essentially Solcap's reasoning was based in pseudoscientific racist ideas about phrenology and, and what is a quote-unquote natural shape of the head. You know, there's no one shape of anybody's head within any group. They all differ in size and shape and all these things. So, you know, they were resorting to basically 19th century, um, like I said, pseudoscientific racism, which is stuff that I teach in my classroom, which is just horrifying to see that be repeated by a quote-unquote international governing body of sport, which is terrific. Um, I mean, I think uh, the heart of your question, though, is that, you know, the fact, you know, could this, could, did, could, to what extent did this, does this ban also impact white people? And you're right and that it absolutely does. And I think this is something that's not talked about too much. Um, and, I, and I'm not trying to say, I, I don't want to give the impression that white, like white people are not the primary targets of racism, right? White people, such as myself, we are the people that perpetuate racism. We by and large benefit from it. We reinforce it to serve our own ends. I want to make that very clear that white people and white women are not the, are not the main victims here. But we can be some of the victims, right? We can be negatively impacted. It's not, I, I wouldn't say it's at the same level at all as black and brown and indigenous people. I don't mean to say that at all, just to be very, very clear. Um, but historically, white women can be impacted negatively by, by white supremacy, and they have been. I mean, there's tons of research showing, for example, that um, that um, white peasant farmers in the South, that they were really negatively impacted by the system of enslavement uh, because they were not able to make the same kind of money as white enslavers were. So they, again, were, were, uh, were, were losers in the system of white enslavement, not at all to the extent of enslaved black people were, but they were losers in, in, the, in the system of enslavement. Um, 
and I, and I knew, as you probably know also, I knew several white, uh, had several white female teammates who indeed had much thicker hair than I did. I have very, I have uh, sort of very, I have a lot of hair, but I have uh, very thin hair. So it wasn't an issue for me, but I had many friends who really, like you said, did struggle to put their caps on. Some of them wore two caps. I mean, some of them were like putting conditioner in their hair to protect their hair, but then when they would put the cap on, the cap would slide off. Like, so there are many, many different issues. But you're absolutely right in that there are white women who would benefit from having a bigger, from being able to wear a bigger cap for competitions because it, it could fit more comfortably, it could fit more easily. Um, and, and so you're absolutely right that white women, um, and even w white men who have thick hair, who, who, who wear it long, they could also benefit from having a bigger cap. Um, and I think this is something that we don't always talk about is sort of the impact of white supremacy on white people. Um, and, and sort of throwing a similar, um, a similar sort of case study is that, um, and, and on the end of Sport on My podcast, we had um, a, another fat journalist named Brittany De La Creta, and um, they, all, they made a similar argument when it comes to transphobic policies and transphobia. And they said that the people who are victims of transphobic policies, um, that um, cisgender essentially um, assigned uh, female at birth athletes can also be victims of transphobic policies. For example, beliefs and policies that say that, um, um, that female presenting athletes should undergo genital exams in order to prove that they are indeed girl or women athletes. I mean, A, not only is this child abuse, but B, how many countless cisgender female athletes and, and male are also going to be sexually abused as a result of genital exams, right? So, like, it's not just the very most marginalized people who will be impacted, although of course they will be, and they will be impacted to a much greater degree. But these policies of inequality and bigotry, white supremacy, transphobia, they impact everybody. And it's something we just don't typically talk about. But I think this example of the cap issue and the question that you raised is, actually, is a really, really excellent example. And so indeed, the fact that, you know, there were probably many, many white female swimmers who could have said, you know what, I have really thick hair and I would benefit from wearing this cap. And, and they still could say that, right? But they've missed the opportunity and there's, again, been silence about it in, in, in so many corners. Um, so I, I think it's such a great question and one that we would all benefit by, by thinking through more thoroughly. You've mentioned the issue of sexual assault and I'm glad you brought that up because sadly, sexual assault in sport is far too common. And usually the perpetrators manage to get away with it because coaches, administrators, and officials either look the other way, don't believe the victims, or place success and profit first and foremost. Recently, the commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League, Lisa Baird, resigned after North Carolina Courage coach Paul Riley was fired when a story detailing the accounts of two former players, Sinead Fairley and Mana Shem, spoke of misconduct and abuse, including using his position of authority to coerce them into sex. Now, this pattern of abuse has been going on for a number of years by Riley and at various teams. And Sinead Fairley had raised her concerns over Riley to the board six years ago, yet no action was taken. On top of this, San Jose State President Mary Papazan resigned after the university agreed to pay $1.6 million to 13 female student athletes whose complaints about being sexually assaulted by an athletic trainer were mishandled. Federal prosecutors found that the university failed to adequately respond to reports of sexual harassment and assault that began back in 2009 
exposing additional harm to student athletes for more than a decade. Dr. Mellis, in the age of the Me Too movement, where predators are finally answering for their horrible crimes, we are still seeing so many more being covered up. Now, swimming's not without blame in all this. USA Swimming has covered up sexual abuse just like gymnastics and apparently women's soccer. What sort of message is this sending to young girls, in particular black girls, who are thinking of going into sports, and in particular swimming? Another fantastic question, and I'll sort of start by like a brief statement and then I'll kind of explain. I mean, if you think of the combination of, of white supremacy and of sexual abuse, right? So this, the not only are black girls impacted by their race, and, and uh, not impacted by the race, but impacted by racism, but also um, sexism and misogyny, right? So there's this term misogynoir, which is the uh, a term to describe it's a unique way that kind of racial, racialized and gendered ways that black girls and women are impacted by our white supremacist society. Um, so really, when you think about black girls then, so not only are they harmed by our white supremacy, and again, I'm including myself in this, that I'm, you know, part of the white community, um, so they're impacted by our white supremacy and the, you know, really atrocious drowning rates um, of black and brown people, but then they're also impacted by the sexism and misogyny, so therefore they are also more, like, more likely to become victims of sexual assault. And we, you know, in terms of black girls within swimming, I mean, what guarantee is there for any sense of safety within swimming the way it's organized by USA Swimming, right? If, if, the, if, the, like, if they're not encouraged, if they're not given the opportunities and the access to learn how to swim in a way that's affordable, a.k.a. free, through the main organization, um, that the organization does not care that they drown, um, it doesn't care if they're going to be sexually abused or assaulted, Right, so therefore the organization is not gonna care for any aspect of their basic safety at all, like period. Right, so like it's essentially saying like, we don't want you part of our program because the odds of you uh, drowning, um, hearing racist comments, of being sexually assaulted are so high and we don't give a damn about it, basically is what USA Swimming, is. that's the message that, that we're giving to them. And I'm talking about swimming, but I think, I think you're right to kind of, again, to kind of think across many sports at the same time. Um, and I mean, you right. So sexual abuse. I mean, swimming um, has. Um, we had investigative reporter Scott Reed, who was really prominent in exposing the sexual abuse within USA Swimming and within USA Gymnastics and many other organizations. And he came on the end of on the sport to kind of talk about this issue broadly because it's happening in so many different organizations. And he told us in the summer of 2020 that the magnitude of sexual abuse incubated and reinforced and, and enabled and essentially promoted by USA Swimming is an order of magnitude greater than what we saw in USA Gymnastics. And that's greater. And we know, you know, like hundreds of girls within USA Gymnastics were sexually abused by this one doctor. And, and, and the, the order of magnitude is even greater within USA Swimming because there are more men who have been allowed to do it and have sort of been incubated and been promoted while they've done it. Um, so you can look up some of Scott Reed's work because it's really fantastic in terms of um, in terms of sort of investigating it and kind of bringing it to light. Um, and, and the reality is that, um, you know, you would think that with all the evidence we have, and, and I would say, too, that the evidence that we have of sexual abuse, it's mainly um, evidence of white girls and white women being sexually abused. Right, that the whole, there's a stigma around um, black girls and black women speaking up about 
sexual abuse, and I think that the, the documentary and all the stuff that's come to light about R. Kelly shows is very, very clear that black girls and black women's lives absolutely do not matter. They matter so much less than white women's uh, uh, lives do. Um, and so we, I mean, I don't actually even know if, if we have public knowledge of cases of black girls and black female swimmers being sexually abused and assaulted. I don't doubt that it's happening at all. It's just, again, they struggle so much more in terms of bringing this information to light that there's no incentive for them to do so because they're going to be attacked and harassed. They're going to be ignored and all of these things. And we see this happen. Again, we, again, I refer to, to for listeners to the um, R. Kelly documentary because there's just evidence upon evidence upon evidence of just people not caring about black girls and black women's bodies when it comes to the issue of sexual assault, right? People care a bit more about whether I was sexually abused, for example, than a black woman. I mean, again, I would still struggle to have my story told and to bring my perpetrator to light, but there's at least so much evidence of that happening more and more and of, and of white women being successful in doing that. Um, and so I think this message is just telling black girls and black women within sports that we don't care about you. We don't care about your physical, mental, sexual health literally at all. We don't care if you drown. We certainly don't care if you're going to be sexually abused or sexually assaulted. Um, and even within the, you know, the National Women's Soccer League, I mean, even before these um, these horrific things came to light, um, there were there was um, a black female soccer player by the name of Kaya McCullough, who I really encourage listeners to, to look up and to follow and support her. She spoke up um, about um, her team's uh, racism and, and racism and just also really horrific abusive treatment of athletes on her team over the summer. And, I mean, she just got, like, pummeled with racism and all of these horrific comments. And even still, she's still getting DMs. She shared one yesterday, a DM of essentially of just, of just really awful racist slurs being directed her way. Um, and, again, that's something that, for example, if I were to call out um, sexual assault against me or other white women, I wouldn't be called a racist. I, I wouldn't receive all these race, racial slurs. And, I, and, you know, I am called a racist by people because I advocate um, be, you know, against racism, and I call out racism. But there's a huge difference between me being called a racist as a white woman and a black or brown woman being pummeled with ra racial slurs and with, with racism, right? Those are two related but two different things when we're talking about kind of scale and trauma and impact. <laughs> I'd like to shift gears here for a moment. While looking at the USA Swim staff directory, I noticed that the majority of those pictured on the page are white with few black and brown faces. There are about 30 photos of white women, but only two or three of POC, both women and men. Now by 2045, it's estimated that black and brown people will be in the majority and of that majority, women will be the dominant number. Dr. Mellis, I have a two-pronged question. First, how much of an emphasis should USA Swimming be putting on getting more people of color in positions of leadership? The reason why I'm asking this is because the numbers of BIPOC are very low in the organization. And if it continues on this trend, it appears that this sport will be even more irrelevant in the eyes of the BIPOC community. My second question is more personal and you can choose to answer it or not. If black women and women of color start demanding more power within USA Swim, do you think 
that there might be pushback from not only white men, but white women in the organization. Now, the reason why I'm asking this is because of the recent issues concerning ESPN's NBA sports journalists, Rachel Nichols and Maria Taylor. And uh, it's concerning a recording that went viral where Nichols can be heard saying that the only reason why Taylor was awarded a certain job was because she was black. Oh, and, and, and by the way, Nichols is white. Absolutely. And I'll definitely answer both questions. Um, so I'll start with the first one. I mean, of course, USA Swimming should be, I mean, USA Swimming has been, I mean, right, if, if you look at their staff directory page, and I, and I acknowledge that looking at images of people, it's not always like a, an accurate way of sort of saying, okay, they look white and therefore they are, right? So it's not an, a totally accurate representation. Um, but, I mean, they, they've done pretty well in terms of getting at least white women in the organization. How much power white women have, it's not totally clear. We, again, we need to do more research. But they've at least gotten more of a seat at the table than they used to have. Um, but, again, like, the, you know, the needle in terms of both addressing sexual abuse against, again, largely white, white women in terms of us having evidence about white women being sexually abused by white male coaches um, again, we still don't have evidence about um, victimized black girls and, and black uh, female summers, but I, I'm sure it has happened. Um, and, and white women have not moved the needle about that issue. They certainly have not moved the needle when it comes to white supremacy. Certainly have not. Um, but I, of course, USA Swimming should be really putting all so much all of their effort into getting more people of color into positions of leadership. I do want to say that their um, the representation is important. Absolutely. And this is part of why they need to be putting more effort into, into getting black indigenous people of color into leadership positions. Um, just getting one person or two people in DEI positions or even just one person in a, in a, in a, in a leadership position isn't going to do much to move the needle because it's that one or two, those one or two people are not going to be able to change the white, the culture of white supremacy. Like they will not be able to do that because as you said earlier, you know, DEI statements, even if a DEI team is filled with um, black and indigenous people of color, those statements still have to get approved by a, by the white leadership in order for them to come out, right? So there are many different layers. And so any DEI statements that we see are going to be white-oriented statements, regardless of however much effort the black and indigenous brown people put into it, but because the leadership is the one that has the final say. So they can change it however they want. Um, and of course, if, if the EI people speak out about it, like odds are, probably there goes their job, right? Um, so it can't just be like one or two, and it cannot just be in DEI positions. It needs to be a full-on effort and, and, ev and, and on every level of the leadership, every level of administration. And their needs, and, and the, the issue is that when people hear those estimates about 2045, right, they're, people, white people are choosing to respond to that with fear rather than saying, you know, we need to, we need to work with them so that the organization reflects these realities and supports their needs. And we need to do this together because this is what's going to be beneficial for all of us and especially beneficial to marginalized and or minoritized communities. Right? But people see those numbers and they fear it. I mean, there was a whole article about how, you know, the percentage of white male college athletes is on the decline. And, like, 
I don't know. Like, it's not that I don't care about that, but like in the grand scheme of things, right, that is a very specific way of looking at it rather than sort of saying we need to kind of restructure all of higher education to, to better meet everyone's needs and sort of focusing on only white men and, and, and their matriculation numbers. Um, so the apps need to be putting in, um, in people of color into positions of power and they need to actually give them power, right? They need to give them power to do what they're hired to do and they need to hire people with expertise to do what they need to do. And it cannot just be superficial. It cannot just be representational and just, okay, we're just going to throw some people up there, but they're still going to have to, you know, uh, work within a white supremacist culture, right? There needs to be a whole uprooting of that culture. Um, so that's the first question. And then the second question is something when, when this whole um, Rachel Nichols thing came out this summer, one thing that I want to add is that not only did uh, Nichols say that Maria Taylor only got her um, job because she was black, but she also basically, she also said that Maria Taylor should not be promoted um, at the, or, or not be given a different position within ESPN uh, sort of reporting, and that um, that she actually say this that she should not be given this position in a way that that would be detrimental to Rachel Nichols. She basically was like, she's not going to be negatively impacting my own position as an ESPN desire kind of um, achieve any kind of um, racial equity is not going to should not come at the expense of my own job. So she bought into that competitive rhetoric that says it needs to be, for example, white women against black women, right? So the solidarity I was talking about earlier was not there. That is so clearly not any form of allyship. That's the girl, the girl boss, white feminist rhetoric right there. That's what Rachel Nichols was promoting, and that's what all the journalists that reported on it initially did botched it. And, you know, they, they were also reinforcing this girl boss, white feminist thing as well. Um, now, I, and in response to your question about um, do I think that not only would white men push back, the white women might push back also, and I say yes, and what I say is I think that white men and a white women would choose to push back against it. And I say that it isn't that, there's a, that there would be a natural backlash, sort of an inevitable backlash from white men and women. They would choose to push back against it. They were, and we're seeing this all over the place with the quote-unquote anti-CRT rhetoric, right? So rather than say, you know what, there's a problem, and we as white people are the problem, and we are going to work with you and support your needs, and we are going to work together to do that, right? There, 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 there ends up being that sort of competitive thing, and that's what white women do, and that's the girl boss ethic that's feeding into capitalism by saying, you know, capitalism is competitive, and if I'm not if I'm not winning, and someone else is winning, and I'm not, then I'm losing, right? Then sort of linking arms and saying, you know, we're going to do this together because this is better for all of humanity. Um, so I definitely think there would be pushback, and I think they would choose to push back against it, and they would choose not to form solidarity. They would not choose to link arms and work together and acknowledge that they, as white people, are part of the problem, and kind of look in the mirror and do all those things they need to do. Recently, Cleek Keller pleaded guilty to one felony count for his role in the insurrection that took place on January 6th. Even though USA Swimming's own code of conduct states that he can be banned from any future swim events, the organization has yet to put out any statements since his guilty plea. They've said that he's not a current member, but their own rule, Rule 304.2 of their own code of conduct says that any, quote, former member can be subject to the Board of Review of USA Swimming. 
So let me just bring this back into context. We have Keller on tape in the Capitol in his Olympic jacket, by the way. He entered a guilty plea that was well publicized. And yet, USA Swimming refuses to take action. Dr. Mellis, if we're talking about a sport that is trying to, quote, invite a more diverse population into its midst, why won't they take action against a man who has actively tried to disenfranchise black and brown people who are lawfully exercising their right to vote? So I think they won't do this because they're white supremacists. Right, they're they're white supremacists through and through, and I they're not actually trying to quote unquote invite a more diverse population because they don't actually care about it. It's a it's a it's a public relations stunt, right? They they got a lot of you know they got all in the right they got um, called in rightfully by so many people, so many important guests you've had on your podcast in the summer of 2020, um, and and so they are making very piecemeal. Um, kind of quote a band aid to go back to the the comment I made earlier, right? The, the quote uh, from Natalie Weiner, right? They're sort of using band aid actions. Um, they're celebrating when they actually hire, like you know, a, you know, black and brown people into their DEI positions because they have, you know, that's the you know the the, the little the smallest thing they can do. Um, and so, you know, U.S. swimming is white supremacist, and, and FINA, FINA clearly is, you know, based on the fact of their use of this pseudoscientific racist chronology, which they never even they never even apologized for that aspect of it. Just to kind of go back a second, they didn't even apologize for using for for the racism and making that comment about the quote unquote natural form of the head that doesn't, you know, every head is natural. But so they didn't do that, and. Um, so I, I just think they're not actually trying to invite more people. They want to keep it a white organization. Um, that's all that they really care about. And so, therefore, they want to cover this up as much as possible. They don't want to address it. Um, I mean, in my history classes, we talk a lot about, you know, who has the power to write the histories that we learn and who does not and what impact does it have on people, right? So USS Swimming, has, as the most powerful, you know, swimming body in the U.S., has the power to write this history of Klee Keller, and so they're just not talking about it. I mean, they they had made that really pitiful statement that some people called brave and bold, and it wasn't. It was like the worst statement ever. I mean, I don't have an I don't have a background. I don't have expertise in DEI the way people like Jen Fry, who was one of your prior guests, she she has so much expertise and training in DEI initiatives. I don't have any expertise in DEI initiatives. I've never worked in that kind of position, and I could have wrote in a statement that was a hell of a lot better than that. Um, so I just boil it down to, like, the white supremacists, they don't want to make any changes. They just want to hush everything up. Um, and, and I honestly, I hold every single, like, white member of USA Swimming accountable for this. And not only people who are administrators, like, working in bureaucratic positions for USA Swimming, I also hold up, I also hold accountable all of the white male and, and female swimmers who are not saying a damn word to hold them accountable because, again, there's so much silence. And I'm friends with several, with a couple of uh, uh, white female Olympic swimmer, U.S. Olympic swimmers on Instagram. And, again, the silence is deafening, um, you know, for, for us, you know, and for a sport that has a couple prominent people, you know, coming out with, like, mental health documentaries and all this stuff. And they're just silent when it comes to racism. They're silent about all this stuff, except for, 
you know, kind of boosting, you know, uh, Shakari Richardson stuff. I mean, which a couple of people did do, which was great, but that's like, you know, you, you, that's essentially doing their one thing and then they wash their hands and they're done. Um, so, I mean, my answer on this, I mean, it's very similar to what we talked about in, in, the, in, in the first episode with you, Najee, is just, you know, they're showing their white supremacy. They're showing it day in and day out. They have yet to convince us of anything otherwise. I mean, you know, even even the two different, you know, um, tr- select national select training camps that they that they that they put out, right? They're just mm-hmm. doing this this separate but but unequal thing over and over and over again, and and that's their mo. Like they're showing us they are an organization, both of the 1950s when we think of the civil rights movement, right? USA something would have been, you know, holding up the sign saying that segregation is supported by the Bible and that we need to have segregated schools and they would have been throwing bottles at people and they're just doing the 2020 slash 2021 version of the same thing. I'd like to return to the issue of allyship and get your thoughts. In 1968, John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised their hands to the heavens in Mexico City to protest racism and poverty back in the U.S., Not long afterward, they were stripped of their medals and banned from the Olympic Village. This moment was captured in an iconic photo that instills pride in so many black and brown people. What is little known about that photo is the white man who stood on that podium with them. Peter Norman, the silver medalist in the 200-meter dash, wore a button for the Olympic Project for Human Rights, of which both Carlos and Smith were associated with. Norman, who asked to wear the button, reportedly told the men, quote, I'll stand with you, close quote. While Carlos and Smith were both targeted back in the States for their stand, Norman suffered alone in far off Australia. He never raced for Australia again. Asked in an interview just prior to his death if he had to do it all over again, Norman replied, in a heartbeat. At his funeral on October 9th, 2006, both John Carlos and Tommy Smith were pallbearers. When white athletes talk about being allies, it seems that folks see a black Facebook profile or a Black Lives Matter t-shirt as an acceptable form of solidarity. But in reality, athletes like Peter Norman risk their livelihood and ostracism for something he believed in. Aside from athletes like Sue Bird and Megan Rapino, are you hopeful that younger white female swimmers and even white male swimmers will be willing to accept the consequences for being allies as Peter Norman did? Um, in short, no, <laughs> not at all. Um, which I, I wish it were the case. Like I genuinely wish it were not the case, but I just, you know, I, there hasn't been enough demonst- there haven't has not been enough demonstrations or sort of evidence to show that white uh, female summers that white male summers would be willing to do this. I mean, I, I think that you know Maya Dorado's comment. I think that was like a gesture in that direction. And again, she got slammed by a bunch of uh, male athletes. Um, I think there have been some attempts to in the summer of 2020. I think there were some like beginnings of attempts to have, you know, what people are calling uncomfortable conversations, right? But those very quickly petered out. Um, And, and, you know, they, you know, I guess my criticism of that is not 
you know, that they've petered out. I'm not saying they petered out due to black and brown people's um, efforts. I, they petered out specifically due to white swimmers' efforts or, you know, lack of efforts or whatever, however you want to describe that. Um, and I, I think, you know, I think when it comes to white women, you know, I, I do acknowledge, and I should have said this earlier, I do acknowledge that, like, you know, white women don't have as much power as white women, right? And we, we do struggle with um, inequalities. We do struggle, we do suffer from having to live in a patriarchal country and a patriarchal organization such as USA Swimming. You know, we do struggle with really serious issues of sexual harassment and sexual abuse, and I do not at all mean to downplay any of that. That is not my goal here at all. Um, and But again, you know, we're not even challenging those issues, right? And And I'm not talking, I'm not talking directly about victims. I'm talking about kind of bystanders, right, people who maybe have struggled from sort of, like, for example, I've never been sexually abused, but I experienced a hell of a lot of sexual harassment within swimming, and also I'm really sad to say I saw a lot of racism, a lot of white supremacy in swimming um, at the club level and at the college level. Um, and, uh, but yet I'm, I, like, try to use my platform and try to use what I can to try to advocate for these things, even if I didn't feel comfortable doing it when I was younger. But I'm doing that now, even though there are people who I'm sure dislike me. I have friends that have stopped responding to me when I respond to their stories on Instagram. I have people that have probably cut me out of their lives um, because of what I've done. And it, it's sad in the moment, but, like, it is what it is because, like you said, these are the consequences. Um, and I just think, you know, women are kind of out to, if, you know, if anything, they'll support their own and they'll support their families and their children sometimes, not even, you know, not even all the time them. But I'm just, I'm just not hopeful. And so I just, I really, really feel for black and indigenous and other people of color who are swimmers, who are divers, who are surfers, who are in any way related to aquatics, because it is a bleak world out there. Um, it's a white world out there, and I think it's going to continue, and it's, we're continuing on a straight path to 2045 and far beyond it, because we've just seen, you know, with the, you know, we saw with the, you know, Trump presidency, we saw, we have all this evidence of, of police brutality and, and murder of, of black and brown people, and that has to move the needle, so I'm not, I don't know what will. Um, I, I really don't know what will. Um, I'm, I'm, like, begging white female and white male swimmers to do more than what they're doing now. Like I'm literally begging them. And I know people, again, they hear this and they say, you know, Johanna is blaming me. I hate this. I'm going to turn this off, whatever. That's a choice that people can make, right? That is a choice that someone can make rather than saying, you know what, this sounds like a call to arms and she's kind of right. I do need to do better. Um, again, there are many, many different ways that people can choose to respond to what I and other guests in your podcast have said, um, and I understand if the immediate reaction is frustration, maybe anger at me, please place the anger at me, don't place it on Nashi, don't place it on our black and brown colleagues, you know, they, they suffer enough, you can blame me, that's fine, I can handle it. Um, but commit to doing better, right, listen to what I'm saying, do more research on your own, you know, talk to people, find out what you can do and, and support black and brown people and stop just like living in your bubble um, because you also are being impacted in ways that you may not even understand and you are not making anything any better. You are just com complicit in white supremacy. You're just helping to harm other people. 
Um, and, you know, I, I know I really go hard on the, the mental health thing. You know, I, I, I have people in my life that have mental health struggles, and I support them as much as I can. And, you know, they are going through things that I don't, I don't understand. But we need to go – we need to say that people struggle for mental health issues, and we, they also struggle for mental health issues partly because of systemic racism, of sexism, of misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, of lack of um, socioeconomic financial support for swimming and other athletes, right? Just talking about men mental health does not address any of the structural issues, right? Um, owing to capitalism and, and the racial patriarchy and all these things, right? So, so listen, you can be angry at me, but use that to do something productive in support of liberation for all. And so I'm just like, please begging listeners to, to, to take this very seriously. Dr. Mellis, I have just one last question. I want to go back to the issue of white female athletes benefiting from the dominant culture. And just a heads up to our listeners, the way I phrase this question might be very sensitive to some of you, but it drives home my point. During the time of slavery in this country, slaves that worked in the master's houses were afforded better food, clothing, and accommodation than slaves that worked in the fields. However, if they were to dare forget their place, they'd be subjected to the same whip as the so-called field Negroes. My question to you, Dr. Mellis, is this. If we keep going down the same road that we're currently on in USA Swimming, do you think that white women will be any safer than black and brown women they supposedly say that they are supporting? What I would say with, with white women, I mean, you're right, is that like, I do think that white women think that, like, well, you know, if I just don't speak out against racism, then, like, I will be safe, right? That I will sort of be protected in terms of, you know, I won't be critiqued um, from either side, right? That I can just sort of be more comfortable in my bubble and I just need to kind of stick my head down and stare at the black line and just keep swimming to kind of use a swimming example, right? We're known for sort of, you know, in terms of indoor swimming, not what you do, which is open water swimming, but in terms of like pool swimming, we're known for just kind of, you know, nose to the grindstone and just staring at the black line and swimming. And that's certainly something that I did when I was a swimmer. Like I was not known for speaking out at all. Um, but your question is a really important one because it points to this kind of false perception um, that we think we are going to be safe if we do that. But the reality is, as you said, like our time will come and our time already has come. And I say are again as a white woman, like we are still being sexually assaulted, right? We're still being sexually abused. Our daughters are still going to be going through the same things that we went through. It might be a little bit better, but it's not going to be demonstrably better. Um, which is why, which is why whenever people kind of, you know, point to like the fear, the, argue, the fear argument of like, oh, well, they're afraid they're going to lose sponsors or like they're afraid of this or that, or they're afraid of kind of pissing people off. Um, you know, the, the alternative is just to wait until it is your turn to be victimized, right? To wait until it is your turn to be negatively impacted and harmed by the cisgender, heteronormative, white patriarchy, right? Because like if you have not been impacted already, like you will be. Um, and I think, I think it's a false perception. I think it's something that the powers that be, the white men kind of use this as kind of the carrot to kind of win over our acceptance of the status quo and our willingness to uphold the status quo of like, well, you know, you may not have as much power as we men do, but you'll have more power and you'll have, you, implicitly, you'll also have it over everybody else. 
Right, and even if these terms are not specifically laid out like verbatim, because it's not like people are actually going to have these conversations because they'd be ridiculous to, this is sort of the implicit um, bargain that happens. Um, and, you know, it's not always easy to figure out this is what's going on, but, again, if you have any sense of the history, which you've already helped lay out for us, Najee, and that we've been talking about, right, that as our, our sort of acceptance in terms of white women, our acceptance is very conditional, and it is conditional on our willingness to keep our mouth shut and to support the, you know, cis-het white uh, patriarchy. And as soon as we do anything wrong, right, that bargain goes out the window, and as soon as we're the only minority, minoritized group left, we are the next people to be victimized, right? So, like, our time is, 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 is here in terms of our time to be harmed and damaged, and it will just continue that way. So that's why the, the, the refusal to be publicly, to be public and, and very vocal advocates to push back against um, these and these inequities and inequalities, this is only going to bite our own asses if it hasn't already. Um, so I think that's why I get so frustrated with the unwillingness to to be to show solidarity and and show it actively and publicly and loudly is that we're already being harmed and we're going to continue to be harmed and we'll just be the primary targets next. And we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Crossing Lane Lines good friend Dr. Johanna Mellis, a professor of world history at her Sinus College based in Philadelphia. She is a former D1 swimmer at the University of Charleston, an elite-level swim coach, and co-host along with Dr. Derek Silva and Dr. Nathan Common-Lamb, the End of Sport podcast, which provides critical commentary, analysis, and interviews on sport and society. The podcast raises questions about the role of sport in our daily lives and whether or not we can reimagine sport and sporting cultures in the future. And just as a side note, I strongly encourage our listeners to subscribe to this podcast, which in my mind is one of the most important on the subject of sport and society. Dr. Johanna Mellis, as always, we wish you and your family health and safety during these challenging times in our country. And thank you again for joining us today on Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you so much, Najee. This was such a pleasure. And I, I tell you this one-on-one, but I just want to put on the record that, like, Najee, you are a historian, you're an activist, you're an amazing person, and I just, the, the, the what, what you provide on this podcast is just so amazing. And I, I'm a historian, and I learn so much from you every single week. Um, so just thank you for pouring yourself into this, and, and thank you for helping us learn. It is so appreciated. This episode might have caused some of you to think that the challenges facing black swimmers is none of your concern that it's sad the way things are, but me speaking out isn't gonna do anything. And to you I say, heed the words of Martin Neimoller, a German Lutheran minister who opposed Hitler and his Third Reich. First they came for the socialist, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist. And I did not speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. 
Then they came for the Jews. And I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. But then one day, one day they came for me. And there was no one left to speak out. I eagerly await to see who the first Megan Rapino, Sue Bird, or Peter Norman will be in the swimming world. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines. Signing off.